1 Corinthians 14. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. That's good. And the law is written with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that they will not, yet for all that they will, they will, they not hear me, saith the Lord. That's a quotation from Isaiah 28, 11 we preached from a few weeks ago. Where for tongues, circle the word tongues, are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? Chaos. But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believeth not, one unlearned, he is convinced of all, he is judged of all. And thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. That's important, that's a great statement right there. How is it then, brethren, when you come together, together, every one of you has a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Now he's now getting to the core of all these, what we call these sign gifts. And speaking gifts, I should say. And they're all talking at one time. Notice Paul's admonition. Let all things be done unto edifying. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, circle that, let it be by two or at the most by three. That's important there. And that by course. And let one interpret. Notice it says let one interpret, not let one interrupt. Amen. How many understand what I'm saying tonight? Raise your hand while you're watching. Amen. Okay. That's what tongue speaking is. Interruption. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let the prophet speak two or three. Let the other judge. Father, tonight we ask that you give enlightenment, discernment this evening. As we give, I guess, kind of a, a lesson 101 tonight. On tongues and the sign gifts. Father, we know that you're to be worshipped. And you gave us tongues to praise you. To sing songs. To declare your word. To build up one another. But in the context of our passage tonight, it's speaking about unknown tongues.
that which is not understandable. That which is not intelligent. We're asking tonight that, Lord, you would help. And maybe someone tonight is watching who all they know is coming from a a tongue-speaking, charismatic background. That you help tonight that the Scriptures would clarify, God, your position and the doctrine concerning this and would help whoever may be divine freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ and doctrinal correction and obedience to the Lord and what it truly means to have the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. Would you bless our Wednesday night service tonight? Would you use it for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're studying tonight what is known in the Bible as a spiritual gift of tongues. I said this a little bit last week in 1 Corinthians 13 that there were the sign gifts and the speaking gifts that the church at Corinth was making a, uh, an overemphasis on uh, to the place where um, there was a lot of pride and arrogance about how they applied the the use of those gifts. Now, we believe that this gift of tongues is a temporary gift that seized, was no longer needed, it stopped before the first century was over, and at the completion of the canon of Scripture. When all of the written revelation of the Word of God was completed, Leading up to that, there was a diminishing need of the use of miracles, tongues, healings, and prophecies, which is talking about foretelling of future events. And as apostles were being killed, the diminishing was quick, was quick, and it's just to the place where it was happening, and perhaps the last couple apostles were left there, that basically the Word of God was coming around and being completed there by, by the writing of those, those men. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. Now today, as many of you know, there are a large body of people today who teach and and preach and advocate that tongue speaking is, is still a relevant gift, and they have popularized it as necessary, as a necessary manifestation of the work of the Spirit. Now, we have around, around just the corner from our church, we have a major tongue speaking church. There's healing, tongues, all that kind of stuff. And there's several large churches in our area. And a lot of the mega churches, if you would, are tongue speaking. They're for it. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna just get into this tonight a little bit. Not deeply. If you want to do a deeper study, we might do that another time, but I'd encourage you to read Dr. John MacArthur's book on charismatic chaos. It's probably the best treatise on it, even though it was written back in, I think, in the 80s. Uh, it was, you know, very, very well written, but uh, still very, very relevant and applicable. 
That's probably the only, one of the few things I'd recommend you read from Brother MacArthur, by the way, just, you know, just so you know that you need to, I, I want to qualify with you, just if, if I tell you something, that's, I'm not saying that his entire writing selection is something you should read. If you're going to read something that's recommended, I can recommend you can read the Bible and not be, amen, and not, not be uh, uh, corrupted by it. But there's some books you might read, you might get corrupted if you're not very careful, because the doctrines of men kind of somehow influence you. But what Dr. MacArthur does, he does a great job on that, and he's, uh, he has another book he's written on integrity that I think you'll find very, the, uh, that I think you'll find very, very helpful to you there too. Now, I'm going to say a few things before we get into the study tonight. As we study 1 Corinthians 14, the first thing I want you to think about with me as we, we study what we're going to get into is concerning the worship of God. Now, the, the worship of God means He is the center of worship and, that, and, that, uh, and not man or man's ability. Now, when we look at this stu- subject, you read the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 14, you start to realize, in fact, we read one of the verses, you start to realize that the center of worship was no longer God. Jesus Christ was not the one being lifted up, but it was man's ability. They were lifting up their gift. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, he starts off with that by saying, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, they were lifting up their gifts. So we've got to remember that, there, that, that, this, that, that the, the centrality of worship is God. Whether we're watching by live stream or as we assemble in person, we must remember that the centrality of worship is God. God is who is to be worshipped. Now, in a Baptist church like this, we worship God, we elevate our Lord, we elevate Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ through sound Bible preaching. Bible preaching lifts up Jesus Christ. Now, the more we lift him up, the more he's exalted. Bible preaching gets our worship of God. It doesn't matter what the topic is in the Bible. Whatever the topic is, it's from the inspired word of God. And it should produce in us a spirit of worship. When we're having our devotions in the morning or in the evening, whenever you have it, it should produce in us a spirit of worship. Now, let me say this. There's worship that glorifies God. And there's worship that is an insult to God. There's no middle ground. Either it worships God, or it's insult to God. Now, I find it very interesting that being saved as many years as I have, that there's, there's two extremes in our Baptist, in our, among our Baptist uh, uh, brethren. There are some who understand the context of worship, and are not afraid to proclaim that, you know, that we exalt Jesus Christ through strong biblical preaching, through, through, from godly music, the reading of the Scriptures, and there are others who believe that, but they're afraid to say so because they're afraid of being labeled or characterized as being soft and uh, being, being a little bit new evangelical. And let me tell you what, worship is found in the Bible. The Bible tells us we're to worship God. I mean, that's just plain what it is. God made us to worship Him. I don't know why anybody would want to be shy about it, but I'll tell you where that came from. That came because of a, an intimidating spirit that perhaps a, maybe a, a, a strong personality in a Baptist movement or in a particular camp among Baptists got up and just started you know, ridiculing and tearing it down. Listen, everything that you read in the Bible about worship tells us one thing. God is to be glorified. God is worthy of our worship, and we're not to shy away from worship. We're not to, we're not to be afraid to say an amen every now and then. Now listen, I'm saying that too because the, 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 that people correlate, well, if you say amen, and you get a little excited about preaching there, that you're, you're charismatic. That doesn't mean you're charismatic. 
I think we have to remind ourselves that we can't let, we can't let something that is good that became corrupted by somebody else we, that we're shy away from. I mean, that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Something that was good there became, people shied away from those things and got, and they, they, they t- stayed away from it. Now we, we need to preach more about worship. We need to say about wor- more about worship because God is to be worshiped. Every Jew, during, when you read our Old Testament, all of them had an altar. All of them had a place where they worshiped God. And it's so important that their focus was on God. That's why they were so easy and, and vulnerable to, to uh, if you were to, to influence them towards idol worship because they were already in the practice of worship. But the problem is they became formalistic. They had, they had religion without heart. And they had, they had worship without, without, without devotion. And so they wanted something that would kind of liven it up and quicken it up. And I just tell you what, tonight, I just found one thing. If you just stay in love with Jesus and you just work on that and you confess your sins and you walk with God in the morning, walk with God at night, I mean, how could you, how could you lose the fire and fervency for Jesus Christ? Amen? I mean, you just need to stay at that thing. You say, well, I struggle with it. Everybody struggles with it. I mean, I, I've been talking with uh, uh, some of our men in the church, and, you know, they, they're just very frank with telling Pastor, sometimes it's just a little, little tough there. And I had a talk with one of our men last night. We were talking through that. But, you know, when we were done, I mean, I, my, my goal is we were talking. I didn't know he was going to call me. We just walked through some things, and I kind of felt like when we finished after praying, I just kind of felt that the Lord took him into the, took both of us into his presence. And, I, and I, I wanted, I, I'm hoping that today he'll tell me tonight that his worship of God was much better. And that's what, what the goal is. I mean, our, even after, after church service, our goal is that you have a greater desire to read his word and be close to God. There's a second thing. There's the worship of God. The second is that all things that we do in church should be done decently and in order. All things that we do in church should be done decently and in order. Now, we means, we mean the whole corporate body, <clears throat> not the staff only. The whole body. Folks, I remind you, this is our church. Our means we, us. Amen? We have the we attitude and the us attitude. Churches get started. You read Acts 16. Churches get started. Souls are saved. Timothys are called to ministry. And more churches get planted. We have to have a we attitude, not a me attitude. So tonight, let's see this evening... The subject of the unknown tongue. I'm going to give you definitions. Things, so get your notepad out. Write some notes. Uh, if, you have a, you're, if you think you're going to capture on the margin of your Bible, you'll probably write all over chapter 14 and not even be able to read chapter 14. So you need to get some paper out so you can understand what's going on. Number one, I want you to see the definition. <coughs> I want you to see the definition. It is being taught in charismatic circles that the gift of tongues speaking in what is called an unknown language is a relevant and necessary gift to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit is in you. Now I'm going to tell you two things on this definition. Number one, Let me tell you about the enabled performance. The word for tongues in the New Testament, this is important, you need to know this, is the Greek word glossa. You'll see sometimes if you do a word study, the word glossalia. Now the word glossa simply means two things. It can refer to the physical organ of the tongue. And specifically as we read chapter 14 and chapter 13, 
and even chapter 12, is speaking specifically of a known, understandable, listen to my adjectives, a known, understandable foreign language. It can even refer to a dialect of a foreign language. So it's a known, understandable language. The word glossa, you'll find it in the New Testament used 50 times. In chapter 14, the word glossa is either tongue or unknown tongue. So when you look up, when you look up the study there, unknown tongue really still the word glossa means what he's talking about there is what he's saying there with the word unknown. He's trying to give emphasis that the believers at Corinth were speaking some form of gibberish. They were speaking some form of, that was a, a, a language that was not, a form that was not understandable there. Now, the first time we see the word tongues being used and the context we're speaking about is in Acts chapter 2, and I want you to turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> I want you to go down, if, with, if you would with me, please, to verse 4. The disciples, there's 120 of them in the church. They're in an upper room. They've been having a prayer time. Jesus has ascended to heaven. It's the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days from the day of Passover. 50 days from the day of Passover. That's what the word Pentecost means. 50. Pente means 50. It's been 10 days since Jesus has ascended to heaven. Please understand what I'm saying this evening. They are waiting for the promise that was given in chapter 1. Let me actually take you back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Now, Jesus didn't have to tell them the number because they were going to guess that, they were going to figure that out that, that moment he ascended up to heaven. Verse 4, chapter 2 now. They're in that upper room. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, otherwise known as His baptism, which is once a once one-time event. Remember that baptism, of the Holy Spirit, is a one-time event. It is not a repeated event. Always remember that. The baptism, of the Holy Spirit, has nothing to do with the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's one thing to be to the indwelling. It's a different. It's a different thing from the infilling. The infilling is repeated. Acts, uh, Ephesians five eighteen. The indwelling is one time. Now, the Holy Spirit, notice verse 4, descended on them, in verse 3 actually, as clothed, like, uh, there appeared to them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it set upon each of them. That was a sim symbolically representing that each one of those, 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 those people in that upper room who had been saved, who had been baptized by our Lord Jesus Christ, they now were being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now remember this. The church was already in existence. The church didn't start that day. Jesus Christ gave the officiation and the approval of the church back in, back in Matthew 16, 18. Protestant literature today will tell you the church and prominent, prominent commentators will tell you today, the church started in Acts chapter 2. I disagree with that. The church did not start in Acts chapter 2. The church started with the authority of Jesus Christ. He was the one that brought a called out assembly. As a Baptist, you need to hold to that and understand that. And so we read chapter 2, verse 4, and they were all, notice this now, 
they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other glossa, tongues. The Spirit gave them utterance. Now, when you deal with the charismatic or Pentecostal, they get excited about verse 4. I do too. But they stop at verse 4. You can't stop at verse 4. Amen? Please understand, much scripture is misinterpreted because someone takes a verse and takes it entirely out of the context of the entire section. You've got to interpret the Bible contextually. You have to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul said. Now, what does it mean they spoke with other tongues? Well, let's keep reading. Now, remember, one of the, one of the great feast days, Jews came from everywhere. They assembled. Jerusalem was a hub and bustling with people. I think, I think right now those believers are in heaven are glad there was no COVID in those days. Amen? That would have been a super spreader problem. Amen? And it says there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, notice this, out of every nation under heaven. Now God wants us to know there were representations out of every nation under heaven. That means... They may have been fluent in Hebrew, but they were like, most likely also fluent in the native language where they came from. Verse 4 tells us, the disciples began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit, by the way, it was not a, it was not a, something that, uh, that happened of their own power, it was by the Spirit of God. And the Bible says, verse 6, now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Because that every man heard them speak in his own, what? Language. Now the Bible clarifies itself. Now, because the Bible knows and God knows that Satan would twist his word. By the way, if you haven't figured this out, Satan has been twisting the word of God since Genesis chapter 3. He always says, yea, has God said... That's why I encourage you, you know, I don't know why so many young preachers don't get it. They read other literature and they, they interpret that and say, well, that must be doctrine. That is not doctrine. The Bible's doctrine. Everything else you read is extra biblical revelation that somebody's trying to add to the Word of God, which that disqualifies you already. You're, you're a false prophet. You're trying to add that to the Word of God. Amen. Notice verse 7. Now here are these men found of every nation... They're, they're confounded. I mean, they're like, what, what's going on here? They said in verse 7, aren't these lotuses? They said, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now, what they're saying is, the dialect those Jewish people were speaking of, of the, of the church, it was very discernible. They're from Galilee. Now, if you speak a foreign language and you're from a foreign country, you know that there are different, different parts of your country. They may have a different dialect, and in some dialects they're, they're heavy, and some they slur, and so forth like that. You, you, if you're from that country, you know exactly what part of the country they're from. You know what I'm saying there, amen? And you notice here, the people which came, they said, wait a minute, aren't these Galileans? Now, Galileans were not necessarily known as producing Grecian intellectuals, if I can say that. They were fishermen. They were tradesmen. 
They were men who were content speaking in their Galilean dialect. And here's what these men said. They said, this is amazing. They said, this is absolutely astounding. We're from other nations here to celebrate the day of Pentecost, the celebration of the blessing of God and blessing us with our harvest as a post-harvest celebration of all that God has blessed us with. We've had another abundant year. God has blessed us. And in the midst of all this blessing on the day, of, on the actual first day of Pentecost, they said in verse 8, How hear we every man in our own tongue? Glossa. Wherein we are born. Now, I, I love how the Holy Spirit helps us understand this. He says, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers in Mesopotamia. He's talking about areas north, north of Jerusalem, north of Israel. We would call that part of Persia and places like that. And he said, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, east of them, Persia, north of them, Pamphylia, Egypt, south of them, Libya, south of them, Cyrene, south of them, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues, our languages, the wonderful works of God. Wow. Isn't that incredible? They're not going, blee, blee, blah, blah, blee, blee, blah, 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 blah. They're not doing all that kind of stuff. They're not walking around, okie dokie, dokie, okie. They're not doing any of that kind of stuff. Amen. Now, I'm not trying to make fun or ridicule speaking tongue, but here's what I'm saying. These men spoke and understand. In fact, to the place, they said, well, surely they must be drunken. These men are full of new wine. Drunken, let me tell you something. A drunken man is not going to speak in some language he's never learned. This was a, this was a miraculous working of God. That God enabled these men to speak in all these different languages that are mentioned here in Acts chapter 2. It was an enabled performance. The Bible tells us here, notice in verse, um, verse 11 and verse 4, it was the Holy Spirit that gave this as a sign gift and a speaking gift to demonstrate the wonderful works of God. Now, here's a question for you. What do you think they were talking about? What do you think they were talking about? They were giving the gospel, amen? I mean, 50 days before was the resurrection. That's fresh in your mind. They saw the risen Lord. I mean, the Spirit of God came upon them and they got, man, they are, they are on fire talking about, hey, we walked with Him and we were with Him and we saw what happened. But I want to tell you, He died on the cross and He shed His blood and Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took His body down and they anointed His body with spices. They cleaned His body and they anointed His body with spices and they wrapped Him in clean linen cloth and they put a hundred pounds of spices on Him and they carried His body to an, in an empty tomb. It was an unused tomb. It had never been used before. It was a tomb that Joseph of Arimathea gave them and they rolled, they had some men roll a stone over it. But listen, three days later, he moved the stone away and he came out of there. And Peter looked inside that tomb and he saw, he walked inside the tomb and he looked there and he saw the grave clothes lying on the slab and he saw the napkin that covered his bed. It was neatly folded later. He said, man, I saw every sign there that nobody came or took him out. He came out there out of his own power and volition. 
And they're excited about preaching and telling people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that he's coming again. And they're excited about telling them the full gospel and tell them they need to get saved and tell them about the wonderful things of God and how Christ is. And they said, listen, the law is finished now. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who satisfied God's demand for, the, for every sinner. It's all taken care of there. And they're talking about the wonderful works of God. Now, Go back to 1 Corinthians 14. I gave you that as a background. That's an enabled performance. That's the origin, the start of the speaking gift of tongues. Are we okay with that? Amen? I need to move quick. I didn't realize how late it was. Now quickly, because i got a lot more to tell you here. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.5. Does that mean because it's the first manifested gift of the Spirit, that was the most prized gift? That was the number one gift? No. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, 5. He said, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except interpret that the church may receive edifying. Now, why do he say that? Because in verse 3, he says, with those who prophesy, speak unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. The gift of prophecy, by according to Paul, was a greater gift than the gift of tongues because of its emphasis on exhorting and comforting. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 14 here, verses 21 and 22, that the gift of tongues was a sign for unbelieving Jews. We, he mentioned that earlier in 1 Corinthians 1.22. It's mentioned here in Isaiah 28.11. Look again at, at verse 21 here of chapter 14. In the law it is written, that's Isaiah 28.11, with men of other tongues, other languages, and other lists, will I speak unto this people. Now God prophesied that in Isaiah 28.11. You need to mark that down, by the way, as a Bible student. God prophesied about that in Isaiah 28.11, but he manifested it there on the day of Pentecost. That's powerful. God, God's not trying to hide anything. He's not trying to skirt any issues. He just basically said, listen, all I clearly meant by, by the word tongues, and everybody accepted that, tongues basically meant a foreign language. An understandable foreign language. And we saw earlier as we read this, in verse 27, the gift of tongues required an interpreter. We'll say more about that in a minute. Now, there was an enabled performance. Number, letter B, notice this. We're still under definition, quickly. Now, we understand what's right doctrine. Let's talk about what's wrong doctrine. I want you to consider the emotional perversion. Listen very carefully to my choice of words, the emotional perversion. Tongue speaking today is practiced by those we call Pentecostals or Charismatics. Tongue speaking is babbling, babbling gibberish, Ecstatic utterances, sounds that are not discernible or understandable. It has a, and I'll say this in a minute, it has a strong attraction to foreign cultures. It has an amazing adaptability in cultures. An amazing adaptability. The tongues movement, I'm going to give you a definition here. The tongues movement is an, and this is what uh, my definition, is an aberrant emphasis on emotional experiences and utterances. It is an aberrant ex, uh, emphasis on emotional experiences and utterances. 
A tongue speaker will tell you without that, you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is wrong doctrine. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not to be confused with the gifts of the Spirit. Now, modern Pentecostalism began on January 1st, 1901, right at the turn of the 20th century. And here's the lady's name. Her name was Agnes Osmond. And she was a student at a Bible college. This man is very prominent in the charismatic movement as one of its found, as his main founder. His name was Charles Parkham, uh, Parham, Charles Parham. And he had a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas called Bethel Bible School. Now, when I say it started, it actually had its roots much beyond, before that. It had its roots going back to the 18th century under the Wesleyan Holiness Movement. If you study the Wesleyan Holiness Movement, you actually found that the, the tongue speaking actually began back then in the 18th century there. In the 19th century, it got it gained momentum through this holiness movement and the late Victorian Keswick Higher Life Movement. But it really took off in North America, here in America, through when Agnes Osmond got up and at this Bethel Bible School, she started speaking tongues. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. They say that she spoke in Chinese. I find that very interesting. How did they know she spoke in Chinese? They didn't have an interpreter there. I mean, I find that very interesting. They had no interpreter there. And she spoke for a few days, and they said she didn't speak English again for a few days, and then she didn't speak it again. I found that very interesting. Two days later, remember this is this this Agnes Osmond started speaking this in tongues. Two days later, on January third, Parham himself, Charles Parham, and a dozen other students also spoke in tongues. Well, this became a phenomena in Christianity. If you know anything about what happened in America and across Europe, the revival movements under Moody and Spurgeon, men like that, was starting to lose its fervency a little bit. Moody had gone on to be home with the Lord. So did Spurgeon. The Whitfields were gone. The Wesleys were gone. There were still revival fires. There were still great preachers. I mean, R.A. Torrey was still alive. But there were some who were not grounded in the faith. That's an important phrase. They were not grounded in the faith, who were concerned about having emotional experiences. And so, this Pentecostal emphasis flourished in individual church groups throughout North America and in 1914, now notice this, 13, 13 years later, 1914, the first Pentecostal denomination, now I, I emphasize that, that's why Baptists are independent. Because denominations write their own rules and their own creeds. The first Pentecostal denomination, which is called the Church of God in Christ, was founded. Now if you study it, study it out, Contemporary charismatic movement, contemporary Pentecostalism. It is strong in South America. In fact, all the Latin, Latin American countries. Africa. Throughout Asia. It has its own unique characteristic on each continent because of its ability, its adaptability within foreign cultures. In our, in our, in our part of the world, in the West, the Western Hemisphere, you find the Pentecostals under these various names here. And I, and I need to give this introduction and we're going to move really fast. 
You find it in churches that have the apostolic name in it. Assemblies of God. The vineyard churches. Church of God in Christ. Church of God of Prophecy. Elam Pentecostal, which you find here and there. Full gospel. And you don't have a full gospel if you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you that right now. Hillsong. Hillsong churches. The International Church of Foursquare Gospel. International Pentecostal Holiness Churches. Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. United Pentecostal Church International. They go by UPCI. And they believe very strongly that the gift of tongues is still here. And then they believe very strongly that if you don't represent this, if you don't have the gift of tongues, you have not received the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let me give you a thought here before I transition to the second point. The belief the charismatics have so strongly about having the gift of tongues and of healings and miracles, they believe so strongly by that, I want you to think just logically with me. If they really believe that these extra-biblical revelations are necessary, then we have to think this through. Then the Bible is not completed. Amen? Then that means we don't, we don't have a more sure word. That's a problem. I tell you, it's more of a problem. They're violating what we studied in Revelation chapter 22. They're adding to the word of God. And by the way, wherever people add, they take away. That's the problem with modern day translations. Now, we've talked about the definition. Again, this is a one-on-one lesson. Number two, quickly, would you notice the dangers? I'm going to give you quickly the dangers. Number one, and there are many, but I'm going to give you several that I'm going to highlight. Number one, here's the problem, the danger with the charismatic movement. The charismatic movement accepts tongues... Their version, and I say their version interpretations, visions, dreams, prophecies, etc., as being messages of God from God to his children. If you walk into one of their assemblies, they quote a verse, if they even do that. They wave their Bible around, if they even do that. And they get off on these extra biblical revelations. And there's no emphasis on the authority of the Word of God. The authority is on their extra-biblical revelation. That's a problem. That's a problem. They're telling you that once you accept these extra-biblical revelations or messages, that if you're not very careful, you will also accept anti-biblical messages as being valid. That's a problem, number one. Number two. And encourages his followers to stay in apostate churches which preach and teach a false gospel by asserting that if the supposed gifts of spirits are present in false religious systems, then joining them in evangelism, worship, etc. is acceptable. You know what that's saying there? It's basically telling you you need to stay here for the evangelization of the world. And basically, they're going to emphasize the gift of tongues and speaking in gibberish, these ecstatic utterances, more than they are the emphasis on winning the soul of that individual to Jesus Christ. Now, 
When they're emphasizing their gift, they're telling you, you need to be here, you need to be in this church. Staying in that kind of a church and as an apostate church. Let me, let me say something to you, church, tonight. When we're out soul winning, we're going to run into wonderful people who are very much ingrained in the charismatic movement. You know what, our, you know what your human tendency is? Is to walk away from them. But can I tell you something? If you, if you drill beneath the surface, you might find out, number one, the person's not saved. Number two, our goal, listen to me tonight, our goal is to try to correct them. And love. And patience. And the spirit of meekness. And to realize they've been ensnared by the devil. It's like Brother Chapel told one of his staff members years ago, Staff member came back from Seoul and he said, what happened? He told him, well, I ran a bunch of charismatics, blah, 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 blah. And he says, I just need to move on. He says, listen, he says, you're not to move on. I want you to go back there. Your goal is to win that person over because they're trapped in, fall, in error and in falsity. And your goal is to convince them. And listen, one of, one of the hallmarks you'll find about a church like, Her- like uh, Lancaster Baptist Church, I'm just saying this to their credit, is that they have helped, they've helped a lot of people that have been snared by the devil. They've helped get their doctrine right and get them corrected about those things. And, you know, we've had a few like that we've helped through along the way, and not as many as I like to. But I just want to remind you tonight, don't shy away from that. Look, there's an opportunity. You may not be... You you may not feel like you're grounded up, but that's why, that's why we, have, we have mature spiritual leaders in the church that can help through that process there. Number three, the charismatic movement or staying in a, in a charismatic church fosters and encourages a spirit of worldliness in the church and in the individual believer. Just look at their services. Just go on TV and watch them. A Peter Popoff service. Maybe you better not go watch I don't want to lose you as a member. Amen. I'm not going to name them off. Those churches are worldly. Their leaders are worldly. I won't get into it, but man, those are mega, mega dollar operations. Number four, a prominent teaching of the charismatic movement is that Christians close to God are always blessed. Uh, they're blessed with uh, prosperity, and they emphasize prosperity theology. Now I can start running off names there, and some of you probably maybe catch a glimpse here and there of that, you'll start saying, now that explains everything there. Can I tell you something tonight? It, it is unbiblical to say that, that if you do this, God is going to bless you. There's no guarantee the word of God that's going to happen there. Let me give you a couple thoughts here. If that's true, then why does God put tests into our life? And if that's true, is suffering out of the will of God? Absolutely not. The Bible tells us in, in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the, the, the testing of your faith, it, it, you know, the fiery trials are necessary for our lives. And the Bible tells James chapter 1 that the trying of our faith worketh patience. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us, speaks about afflictions as being light afflictions. That was Paul's description there. And he says they're good for us. And he says in 1 Peter 5.10 that, that sufferings will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. Uh, Romans 5.3 that says a tribulation work of faith. Well, brother and sister Christ, listen, one of the greatest characters in the Bible who went through, went through the fire was Job. And the three Hebrew young men that were Daniel's friends, they went through the fire. 
Don't believe that stuff that they say, well, that must mean that God, that you did some kind of sin. That does not mean that you, that means God is using something in that in your life to perfect and strengthen and establish you. Here's another thing, number five. Sometimes this is called being slain in the spirit. The charismatic movement promotes and encourages what is called coming under the power where the leaders of the charismatic movement will lay their hands on an individual, causing them to swoon, to faint, to slump down, or experience this power, they just sprawl out on the floor. Now, when I get tired, I feel like sprawling on the floor too, but that wouldn't be very good, amen? They're laying hands and they'll pop you beside your head, and you're supposed to fall on the floor. That, and what they do is they take John chapter 18, verse 6, where Jesus spoke a word and they all fell down. They say, well, see, Jesus, the, that is completely taking John 18, 6 out of context. That is completely taken out of context. John 18, 6 is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus Christ. When he spoke a word, they fell at the, they fell at the word of God. That's not a charismatic context there. Here's another one, number six. This is a big one. I probably should have put this first. Charismatics teach that Christians can lose their salvation because of sin. That's a problem. They're saying you've got to keep, you've got to keep, you can lose your salvation and gain it back. You've got to be doing certain works. You've got to persevere to the end. That is not taught in the Bible. You have nothing to do with keeping your salvation. God is the one who keeps us. Not to him that has the power to keep us from falling, the Bible says. That's in the book of Jude. They play upon emotions and experiences. They teach that, the, that speaking in tongues is the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Really? Look at Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You shall receive power. For what reason? For the preaching of the gospel. The filling of the Spirit was not for the manifestation of the special gift. The filling of the Spirit is for the sole purpose of winning souls to Jesus Christ. That's the Bible. And if you read the Bible, of the many times the book of Acts, people were filled with the Spirit, you don't find that there was a manifestation of speaking tongues. And where there was a speaking tongues, you find in the book of Acts, it's only mentioned three times. Each time, there was an apostle there, and there were Jews there that validate that gift. And by the way, isn't it interesting outside of 1 Corinthians, none of the other epistles mention about the importance of the speaking tongues? Why? Because the Word of God was being written and the completed revelation, the completed canon of Scripture is being given to God's people. Number nine, charismatics elevate experiences over the Word of God. That's a problem. Charismatics, number ten, claim that you do not have the full gospel and you are unsaved if you do not speak in tongues. That's a problem. That's a heresy. The full gospel is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and is risen again. Amen. So we've seen the dangers. Number three, very quickly, I want you to see the directive. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 14 to give us guidelines about this matter of speaking tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, what we just read in verses 20 to 28, 29, are biblical guidelines so that the practice, the speaking gifts, were done decently and in order. That's what he says in this chapter here. So let me give these directives to you very quickly, okay? Look at verse 27. Now, again, the context of this is speaking in other languages, right? But because there was this unknown tongue problem, here's what he said there, okay? No more than three people could speak a, a language. Look what he says. 
If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it by two, at the most by three. Now, you go to charismatic church, it's, it's nuts. You know, all, everybody's talking. That is not biblical. The Bible says if there's an unknown tongue, not more than two or three. Then he says, um, they must follow the other. Look at verse 27. Look at it again. He says, if any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two or the most by three. And notice this, and that by course, in order. You don't speak at the same time. In order there. And he says there has to be an interpreter. In most cases, they, 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 you know, they, try to, they try to conspire. They have an interpreter there. But, I mean, you're talking about someone who hears it right there in the spot. They can say, Here, here's what he says in that language here. Now, notice verse 28. In the absence of interpreter, they're all to keep silence. That just blows a hole right into everything they're doing. Amen? And he says, there keep silence and no one is supposed to speak. Look at it again. Verse 20. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Uh, number five. The Holy Spirit does not cause confusion or move people to act out of control. Look at verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. In other words, we read through this, they were not supposed to go out of control. They were not supposed to be in a confusing service. When, when Paul wrote this, the church at Corinth was in chaos. Prophecies exhort and to edify. Here's another thing. Look at verses 34 and 35. Part of the orderliness. Let your women keep silence in the church, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. Now, the qualification for that goes back to 1 Timothy 2. But they are commanded to be under obedience, and also, uh, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, God is not a sexist, okay? Let me just say it right now, okay? Someone says, oh, okay, here goes, we're, we're getting to sexism, and Miss Jogany, and whatever you have pronounced that, and so forth. That's not what it's saying there. That's not what the Bible's saying there. And God is not putting down women. God loves them. In fact, some of the, by the way, some of the best soul winners in our church are women. They're using their gift and the right, they're using their, their ability to speak. I shouldn't say their gift because then someone's going to say, well, evangelism, that just soul winning is a gift. It's not a gift. It's a command. But they're using their ability for the glory of God. You go to, you go to a tongue-speaking church, the predominant influencers are the women tongue speakers. <laughs> get into this another, another time there about women speaking in the church. Why, why does the Bible say that? That's another topic. Now notice Paul said this in verse 19. Yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also rather than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. That's a very good thought. We must agree with Paul about that. There was confusion in the church. Paul made very clear the order in the church was that tongues is a foreign language. And if there was an unknown tongue being, unknown tongue being spoken in the church, number one, is it, is it, you know, he talked about earlier, he talked about, well, you know, tongues were giving for, were, for the purpose of winning unbelievers to Christ. And if everybody's talking one time and it's unknown tongue and there's no interpreter and unbelievers come in and they hear all this, this confusion going on, this cast, they're going to say, they're going to say, you're mad. You're out of your mind. That's what he's saying there. It's for the purpose of winning souls to Christ. Now, thank God, 
God doesn't need that anymore. And by the way, isn't it kind of interesting that even in the charismatic movement, they'll send their people that feel like they need to go to the mission field, they'll send them to language school. Wait a minute, that's contradictory to their, their doctrine. If you really believe you have that gift, why do you have to spend time in a language school? Come on. Come on. And Paul said, listen, if, if, I, if I'm using this gift this way, it's better for me to speak five words in understand a language that is edifying and helpful and leads people to Christ than to speak 10,000 words that are not edifying. That's what he's saying there. It's right here. Amen? Paul took eight verses, nine verses, to basically explain the guidelines for tongues. Now, we go to the last thing, we're done. I want you to see the discontinuance. Tongues, miracles, prophecies, healings have all ceased. They've all ceased. They're temporary gifts. Because we have the completed canon of the Word of God. They said, well, wait a minute. You, you don't understand. We built our church on this. Church growth and church doctrine are two different things. The goal is not growth. The goal is God. The worship of God. So go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And this is what Paul said. Now this is going to make sense to you. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall, it shall vanish away. For we know in part... We prophesy in part. You know, Paul was saying this. I said this last week. He was saying, you know, we didn't, at the time he wrote that, he says, now we prophesy in part. We, we didn't have completed revelation. We're only giving what, we're, what God is giving us to right now to help, to be a blessing, a courage, and to edify the congregation. He says, now we know in part, prophesy in part. But he says, but, and he was part of this process of completing it. But when that which is perfect is come, and I said to you, I told you last week, that which is perfect means two things. One of those things is the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. He says, but when that which is perfect has come, that was the word of God. When the word of God is completed and was completed in that first century, then that which is in part, that means those gifts that are mentioned in verse 8, that which is in part shall be done away. They'll seize. Paul was deflating their balloon. He says, listen, you're all puffed up. You think you're hot stuff because you can speak in tongues. You do these miracles, things like that. He says, I want to tell you something like that. He says, tell you something right now. They're going to seize. They're going to vanish away. There's been the discontinuous. We don't need all those sign gifts. We don't need all these extra ecstatic experiences. Why? Because we have the Word of God. God's Word changes lives. The Word of God, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And by the way, it's kind of interesting, in Psalm 55, the tongue is compared to a sword that slices and, and hurts. It's sharpened the two edged sword to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. The Word of God doesn't need human experience. The Word of God takes care of itself. Heaven and earth shall pass away, God said, but my word shall never pass away. The word of the Lord endureth forever. Listen, he said gifts will pass away, but he says the word of the Lord endureth forever. So tonight... God's Word gives light. God's Word cuts and divides. God's Word exposes. 
God's word speaks to us. It's a lamp in our feet, a light to our path. It's forever and forever and forever. We must give preeminence to God's word and let him take care of the results. We must let the word of Christ do what is richly. And don't emphasize on experiences. Emphasize on the fact you have the word of God. Let God's word work and prevail in your life there. When that which is perfect has come, we have it. We have a more sure word of prophecy. So tonight as we look at that, go to chapter 14, verse 40, we're done. Let all things be done decently and in order. Order in the church. Now we don't have this issue here at Heritage Baptist Church. We're a doctrine correct church. But in our travels, we'll run to people who do. They have these issues. And you can take the Word of God and love them, help them, and encourage them to write doctrine, to serving God, of knowing they have a more sure word, and help them make sure they're saved. And if you're watching tonight my live stream, and maybe you've been in the charismatic movement and can I ask you a question? Are, are, are you someone that struggles with, I'm saved one day and lost the next way? That if I sin, I lose my salvation? Now, I'm going to tell you tonight that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all your sins. He died for all your sins. And when you repent of your sins, call on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're saved on that day and that moment. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised from the dead, you're saved. You don't need to get saved over and over and over again. You're born again once and for all when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're not sure you're saved, it may be that you really never repent of your sins and call on the Lord. Tonight you can do that. You can say tonight on the seventh day of October, I'm born again to God's family. And you never have to look back and worry about it. You're saved. You're saved not because you do the keeping. You're saved because God does the keeping. You're kept by the power of God unto salvation, ready to be revealed unto the last day. 1 Peter 1.5. Get saved tonight. Christian, have you been confused about this? Find grounding and foundation in God's Word tonight. Be set on God's Word. These are things you learn in discipleship. These are things we help you through. We have, we have men of God who can help you to understand the Word of God. Let's be strong in the Lord and the power of His might.